Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. You know, perhaps from your bulletin, that I'm bringing you the concluding message of six on the subject of confession and repentance. Very big subject. Of course, uh, addendum to that would be further messages on forgiveness, because uh, that, of course, is what we seek when we go to God with confession and repentance. And I have assigned to me probably the most familiar text that our series has taken in, and in many ways a sort of concluding text, you might say, and it has the liability of being a very well-known text. And those are harder to preach on than things that are not so well-known. So listen as I've studied and brought you what I think are some thoughts from the Lord. Psalm 51, very familiar psalm of David, the master psalm about the mercy of God and his forgiveness that he desires to load upon his people. I'll read the first 17 verses of Psalm 51. Follow along. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Lord God, we pray that these familiar words, almost too familiar for their wonderful content, might minister to us, convict us, guide us in our own confession before you, 
Oh, Lord, because we are saved and forgiven and justified, we have the, the sense or the tendency to take it for granted. May we, in David's words, hear that this man of God did not take you or your repentance, your forgiveness for granted. And may, may we with him cry to you in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have undoubtedly heard in the past at some time or other that this text, this psalm, was brought forth as the prayer of an utterly desperate, repentant man, King David. And you probably know that it is based on his having committed adultery with beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of an Israelite warrior named Uriah. You probably know that 2 Samuel 12 tells us how David further schemed to give Uriah a frontline battle assignment where he was killed as the king intended that he would be. And you will probably know the aftermath of it all, that King David did not acknowledge these heinous sins of adultery and murder until he was directly accused by the court prophet, Nathan. Nathan said, you, David, are the man. And the king came apart at the scenes. But despite the gross shame of his sin, and convicted by the Spirit of God, David finally did bow in a most sincere way, and this psalm is his written remembrance of what he prayed on that occasion. Now, I'm not going to really delve very much into David's background or, or what occasioned this from this point onward, because I want to see this not simply as God interacting with one man, David, but rather here a pattern, a template, a model of what repentance needs to be in every believer's life. Repentance comes before faith. Repentance and faith are twins. They're both part of a, a man or woman coming to Christ. And I'm concerned with how we come to Christ, not just once in our lifetime, but over and over again, even daily or regularly. And so we're leaving behind David's story here other than for the fact of remembering that he, of course, produced this. We want to see the abiding lessons that are here for God's people today, because if we, not in David's century, but in 2021, will hope to claim the righteous salvation that is offered us in Jesus Christ, our tongues must echo the dust and ashes of David's desperate cry, have mercy. Oh God, have mercy. I have no hope if you do not. We must go to God with this sad wail upon our lips and in our minds, not just when we are accused as David was of some heinous fault, some obvious crime, but rather as a regular way of approach to God, certainly once for all in a, the beginning of our salvation, but even frequently in the Christian life, we are called to cry out as David did and realize that our salvation is a gift to those who do not deserve it. Psalm 51 really forms one of the Bible's clearest statements of what we in Reformed theology call the total depravity of mankind. 
Now, there are surely people who don't like that title. Total depravity really sounds awful. Sounds like you're saying a person is utterly as bad as they could possibly be. And actually, we're not saying that. The total part of total depravity applies to the extensiveness or the degree to which our sin colors and shades all aspects of our lives. Romans 3.23 summarizes this doctrine by saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 further adds, there is no one righteous, not even one. Isaiah 6 has that great picture of God pictured as holy, 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 facing the awesome perfection and uniqueness, the, what the theologian calls the aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, vocabulary word for the night, meaning that which of which there is no other. God's utter uniqueness is so great and so awesome that we fall down before him, saying as Isaiah did in the light of that holy, holy, holy declaration, I am a man of unclean lips dwelling amid people of unclean lips. The term total depravity does not imply that every human being is utterly 100% as evil, as corrupt, as depraved as they possibly could be. It does not mean that. It does mean that every part of our being, every thought, every faculty that we have command over is touched or tinged or shaded by sin. I don't know why I had a strange thought that like even an evil monster, an immoral man like Adolf Hitler must have sent flowers to his mom on Mother's Day. Who knows? No one is probably as far gone as they possibly could be, except the son of depravity, Judas, who Jesus said goes his own way and is absolutely lost. But total depravity means every bit, every, every synapse that goes on in my brain to motivate a thought or a memory or a plan or, or a word is not what it could be. It's tinged, it's shaded by my pride, by things that are not of God. Exactly three weeks ago tonight, in fact, during this service, we were sitting back there when, yes, my wife had her phone turned on. I'm telling on her, not me. And there was a good reason, because we were expecting a new grandson. And sure enough, he arrived during the worship service. We got the news that David Rogers was born to our youngest son and his wife. What a proud thing, 15 grandchildren. Now, I'm sure that David Rogers is the most handsome baby boy in the entire town of Lancaster, county of Lancaster. I will just certify that to you. I've seen him. He is. And, you know, I cannot imagine anyone wanting to bring a moral criticism against little David Rogers. How could they do it? There he is. He's got all his fingers and toes, and he cries like a baby and does everything else that a baby does. And uh, you couldn't criticize him. You, you wouldn't go and say, him and say, oh, my, what a, what a terrible sinner Dr. Rogers' new grandson is. You wouldn't say that, I don't think, unless you had a lot more beautiful grandchildren than mine. <laughs> but you would say, I hope, as a Christian, why, here is a wonderful baby, fulfillment of the hopes of his parents to have a child, and 
But guess what? Psalm 51.5 says, from the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was a sinner. Many, many centuries went by with people reading wrongly uh, the words, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, thinking that that was somehow labeling the sexual act of a husband and a wife as a sinful thing. No, it does not say that. It is saying that we, from the very first moment that we exist, from a little tiny clump of cells smaller than your fingernail, are born, are ready to be born into the penalty of Adam's sin. Awesome thing. Ephesians 2, 1 says that because we are biologically alive, we enter this world, spiritually speaking, dead in trespasses and sins. Wow. That, that really gets awesome when you think of it in terms of your new three-week-old child. Perhaps in place of the offensive term, total depravity, some people have offered a substitute. R.C. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, was one who did. By the way, his biography is out if you're looking for an excellent book to read. R.C. Sproul, A Life. Uh, Sproul said, you know, without losing the meaning, instead of saying total depravity, we could call it radical corruption. I kind of like that. What's the problem? The problem with that is, we lose the right initial in tulip. That's a problem for some people. Radical corruption means that no part of our human mind, no neuron going in this decaying brain that, that plans something or executes something is free from deceit, pride, selfishness, violence, and all kinds of other problems that we would deny, but nevertheless, they're true. I haven't taught a young people's communicant class in a long time with a multiple staff while I was pastor here for more than 20 years. But when I did teach communicants years ago, I, kids like a demonstration of things and you keep them interested. I used to bring in a glass bowl, good sized mixing bowl, it was clear glass. And I'd, I'd say, come on, we're gonna go fill this. I want you to see, I'm gonna fill this from the church drinking fountain. So we filled it up, got pretty good amount of water came back to the classroom, set the bowl on the table. I said, now, is anybody especially think, uh, thirsty? You saw where I got this water. You know it came from the drinking fountain. And, and here's a few paper cups. Anybody want a drink? And there was usually one kid that would say, sure, I'll take a drink. Good. Have a drink. Was that enjoyable? Yes. Was it refreshing? Yes. I said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to alter this very slightly. And I got out a bottle I've had for a long time of India ink. You all know what India ink with a dropper, you know. It's pretty thick uh, black ink. And I said, I'm going to take this and I'm going to put three drops of ink into the water. Well, you know, there's a scientific name. Some of you scientists tell me later uh, for what happens with colored molecules like that as they disperse, they swirl and they move. And, and you know that pretty soon you have water that is entirely light gray. And I said, who now wants a drink from my bowl? Can I induce anybody to have a drink? In years of using that illustration, nobody ever took me up and went home with a gray tongue if they would have. Mom wouldn't have been happy with me, I don't think, if they would have. Nobody ever wanted to take it. I said, look, 
look what's happened. This bowl of clear, refreshing water is your soul and your mind. And it's not undiluted India ink, but it's got enough in it that the entire substance of water is entirely polluted. That's what we're talking about. That's where David is coming from here. That's David's self-discovery. That there was no particle of his thinking or his acting that was not touched by sin. Now think about that simple statement for a minute and think about our society today. What does society today say about evil and sin and humanity? Every single day your newspaper says, why, humanity is good, basically good. Whatever people want to do, as long as they're not directly harming somebody else, we're good. Well, God's word says no, not so. Liberal humanism today is wrong in so many ways in not seeing that at the root and core of our whole being, we need to ask God for moral, spiritual cleansing that goes deep into a corrupted human nature. Now, the rest of my time tonight, and I will watch the clock, I offer you three points. And the first one is quite a bit longer than two and three, which are very quick. So in case you think you're enduring a long time, by the end of point one, there's two quickies to come. These points are labeled by words that are not actually found exactly in the text, but I think these words characterize three things. Realizing, pleading, and expecting. First of all, when we come to God for repentance, we are needing to realize how guilty we actually are. We're entirely in need of the work of the high and holy God. We begin and we end our mortal lives lost as far as any saving capability goes. And God, the all-sovereign one, must either show us mercy or we have no path, no door, no way to break into the, the enclosure of a salvation in Jesus Christ. Facing the truth of humanity's lost condition is something millions of people never know. That's why we are so zealous to send missionaries. People need the Lord. People need to hear that they are not simply uh, part of a liberal mass of humanism where you can do just about everything you want to and tear down every moral standard of the Judeo-Christian faith and still say, oh, well, I embrace you and you're a little different than me, but that's fine. Just do what you want to do. We need to realize that, that there must be a great spiritual renovation that for many people is going to be in total upheaval of the very basic basement foundations by which they approach their world and other people. So we must pass through a, a deep experience in many cases of repentance in order to gain saving faith. And people don't realize that repentance is the first step of coming to Christ. And it even much of the time, or most of the time we might say, precedes faith. Biblical repentance involves a 180-degree turnaround to realization that what I was without God and without Christ and without the Scripture is wrong. 
and I will never find God that way. Now, I certainly wasn't alive yet in December 7th, 1941. I came along eight years later. But I've studied a lot of American history, and I've tried to imagine just what our country was like in that year. The, the Depression had basically lifted, and people were on their way out of that. They are feeling better about their world. World War I was over for a while, and the great flu that swept our land that time in 1908 no, 18, I guess it was, uh, was done with. And actually, 1941 was the year my dad graduated from high school. What was it like to be in America? Well, one thing I know that I've learned and didn't know for a long time is that people were so rather disgusted with the, the losses of World War I and all the deaths and all the change and everything else, they didn't want any part of another European war. And fully two-thirds of this country would have voted if you put a simple ballot out. Do you think we should intervene to help England in particular and other countries uh, fight off the German aggression in Europe? By that time, England was about the only country still standing. And guess what? Two-thirds, two-thirds of all Americans said, we don't want involvement in any more European wars. No, we won't go. And then very suddenly, guess what happened? A little Sunday morning surprise, a terrible surprise, called Pearl Harbor. And you know what? Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, and for many weeks thereafter, there were long lines outside the recruiting agencies of every military service as people said, whoa, they brought the war to us, now we're in complete change of mind. That isolationist attitude that was really quite strong in the country just about disappeared. You might even know that Charles Lindbergh, great hero of American history, became a pariah because he continued to defend isolationism and was thought to be a friend of Germany. Complete change, complete repentance. Everyone said, we've got to go to war. They attacked us. They killed our boys. Why, 2,000 of them are still trapped in the hull of the Arizona, dying quite soon after they heard the banging of wrenches against the hull of that doomed ship. Well, biblical repentance activates just such a remarkable change as that in individuals. It causes souls to realize that previous notions of basically seeing our salvation depend on doing the best I can. Why, after all, God grades on a curve, surely. I'll make it if anybody does, right? It turns people around. Repentance does. So that like David, we see we can do absolutely nothing that impresses God or wins us points in eternity. God must do it all for us and in us. When I came here to Lancaster County almost 27 years ago, I remember vividly, boy, I, you know, I don't remember an awful lot of sermons I've heard, even some from famous preachers. I don't even remember my own that well. But I will never forget a sermon I heard by a man named Charles Cummings. Charlie Cummings was the pastor at Manor Church down in southern Oxford, uh, or, yeah, near Oxford down there, Fags Manor it was called at that time. 
And he was retiring as I was moving here to begin ministry here. Charlie preached a retirement sermon to the whole presbytery. He was a bit of a character. You really had to, to know this guy. And he, he liked to sort of twit people and use humor. But he based his sermon on a very surprising text, Genesis 3.19. The the text that has this sentence, you are dust, and to dust you will return. How's that for a farewell? And, And Charlie even dramatized it. He said, my fellow pastors, you are D-U-S-T. And because of you, God owes the dust an apology. Wow. We were awake. And we remembered Charlie's sermon. And you know, I was reminded at the first sermon of this series of six here in our Wednesday night times that the first one was John the Baptist out there in the wilderness. And what was John the Baptist's one-word sermon? Repent. I think it always bothered me. And it just sort of came to light to me recently to, to realize that I was always kind of bothered by the fact that John the Baptist didn't use a campus crusade for spiritual laws or the typical evangelical, you know, you guys need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That wouldn't have meant anything. He went out there and he preached one word, repent! Prepare yourselves for the great truth of God that is coming your way through Jesus Christ. Of course, he did later add Christ and and bring Christ into the message. But he preached first and prominently repentance. You need to do something that you can only do because of the power of God and the motivation of God and the Spirit of God. Get on your faces before your Savior and God and get ready to hear of a great truth. If you would study American church history, I have a lot of books in my library that I won't give up on that subject, especially the subjects of the Great Awakening in the early 1700s and the various trails that led to revival. I don't mean the kind of silly stage revival when you put a banner across Main Street of the small town and say, revival this week, souls getting saved, better show up. That's a human stage thing. I mean the kind of revival when God comes and visits people hearing the preaching of Christ, and people are literally knocked down on their knees on the sawdust trail and say, oh God, you all know of Edwards, and people mock Edwards' great sermon. What a mind, that man. You know what I'm really... uh, here's, Here's why the U.S. postal system is failing. Because they refused multiple times to issue a stamp with Jonathan Edwards on it the greatest philosopher and theologian that America has ever produced, bar none, never got a stamp. Mickey Mouse got one. All kinds of actors got them. Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and he pictured the idea, sure it was imaginative, but based on scripture that people were walking across a rotting floor, flames beneath it, about ready to break through, and this was your estate. And Men and women alike fell down in the church. The churchgoers, not not just the unevangelized. The church people fell down on their knees and pleaded, Preacher, stop. Don't tell us anymore. We're scared. We're afraid. Oh God, how can I possibly be saved? 
And there was this great yearning to come to God, but the sense of brokenness and unworthiness that uh, it, it couldn't be for me. I'm not worthy. Well, that's the repentance that God seeks to bring us to. So that's the realization that we need. The realization that repentance must be ours brings us to be broken before God. Well, secondly, then, a very short point. Secondly, this spiritual heart attack of realizing our dire need for the grace of God gives way to pleading, pleading prayer. Look at it here, especially in verses 7 through 12. And, and I, I could, you know, take time and exegete each of the Greek verbs here and everything. Don't have time for that. I just want you to see the surging, sweeping, pleading cry. Purge me, God. Wash me. Let me hear joy. Let the broken bones rejoice. Cast me not away. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Desperate pleading. Oh, God, have mercy. Tonight I ask you to bundle those requests together as a repentant man's plea to be given a whole new life. Because David was asking for nothing but that, a whole new life, to obtain the peace of conscience and assurance of eternal life that after his death he would be with God. David isn't a resplendent king here. He's just another human beggar begging pleading, God, let me feed on your living bread. So thirdly then, didn't I get to the third point quickly? Thirdly, I see David expecting, expecting God's answer to his plea. He wasn't just throwing out requests here, blindly saying, oh, I, I've passed the bar where God can't hear me anymore. He can't possibly answer me. No, you read the desperate as he sounds in the middle of the psalm. By the end, he's sort of wrapping it up, and by at least 13, excuse me, <clears throat> need some water. By verse 13, he's already anticipating that his prayer is going to be answered. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways. What's then mean? when I know you have forgiven me. And I feel sure that such a time will come when it comes and when I see that you have worked in me, then I will become your witness. Others will look upon me and learn of me. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. You see how he's changed? Realization of his great need pleading for a new life, expecting and hoping that God will indeed give it. I just ask each of you, you know, there's a danger in a church like ours. We have a lot of well-established saints in this church, and I don't just mean people with good incomes who live in very nice Mannheim Township houses and drive very nice Mannheim Township cars. Never saw so many Range Rovers in my whole life as in Mannheim Township. I don't have any idea what those things cost, but I can't afford them, I know that. It's not a danger just that we have security and good jobs or that we have people who are intelligent and skilled and in great professional positions. 
Sometimes all those things can insulate us from getting to this situation where the king of Israel found himself. He was the king. He could buy anything he wanted. He could send troops out to do anything he wanted. He could command hundreds of warriors who were relatively successful. The early fortunes of Israel reached a high point under King David. He didn't have to listen to a prophet who came and said, King, you're guilty and you better wise up and repent. I come to ask you if you have ever in your life come to something like a Psalm 51 realization of how helpless you are before God apart from Jesus Christ. Because I'm sure that you do know. David said, I know my transgression. I live with it. It wakes me up at night. I see it in every beautiful woman in the city. I know my transgression. Can you say that? Do you know the places where you've really slipped up with God's moral law and commandments? Have you ever faced squarely? And I'm not just talking about confessing one sin here or there. Your whole condition, your whole way of walking apart from God, have you faced that squarely and realized that a general repentance is the doorway to saving faith? Or are you still on the train of making excuses Blaming others, futile cover-ups for your shame. You know, there's a holy God who looks at billboards with your life on it. Not everybody else sees. Sometimes other people will see it too, but God sees it. We've largely done away with the highway billboards in our land, haven't we? Many of you can remember them from years gone by. Can you imagine it that your life is a journey and there's billboards all along the way and God reads every single one of them because they record what you are and who you are? Well, King David the psalmist was literally the ancient ancestor of the one future king of the universe who went deliberately to a bloody Roman cross to unsin all of us we will begin our return to him and continue our return to him with a searching, pitiful, wailing repentance for what we are apart from him. Jesus Christ is the innocent one who stands in place of all your guilt and offers you a whole new life. And because of him, Isaiah 118 could give this firm promise. Although your sins be as scarlet. They'll be white as snow. Thanks be to God. God, our Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the gospel had to begin for David in the midst of an ugly, whole complex of admissions that he pled for and recognized. Thank you that he got it so that he could express it so well for us in this magnificent psalm. Lead us, O oh God, even this Easter season, to a place before the cross of Jesus Christ, where we may need to even begin again with him. We'll do your work in us, Lord, according to your good pleasure, for Jesus' sake. Amen.